Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Let's get into the Word, Dr. Hatfield. You can open up your Bible with me this morning to the fourth book in your New Testament. That's the second half of your Bible. It's the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. So we are continuing in our series called Jesus Uncensored, um, encountering the walking, talking, living God. And we're looking at these moments in the life and the ministry of Jesus where he encounters all these different people, powerful and prominent people, but also desperate and destitute people. And every week we've seen that the one common denominator is that when people encounter Jesus, they are changed and transformed forever. And we believe that now in 2019, many, many centuries later, we can afresh encounter Jesus as we dig into the scriptures and we trust for his spirit's Work. So in the seventh message, we are going to look at an encounter that Jesus had, not like with the devil last week or some of the random people that he've met, but actually with his inner circle. We're going to look at the encounter that Jesus had with his own disciples the evening before his death, the evening before his crucifixion, the encounter that Jesus had with his disciples. Now, I have to lay some groundwork because this is important for us to understand. So before we're going to get to that passage, I want you to understand that often when we think about that evening before Christ's death, we think of what? The Last Supper, this meal that Jesus had with his disciples, because that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in their uh, you know, record of the life of Jesus, their gospel, the good news, that's what they focus on. But John says, yeah, that's been covered. I want to focus on something else of that evening. I want to focus on the discourse that happened between Jesus, the conversation, and eventually the prayer between Jesus and his disciples. And the thing is, I don't know if you know this, but if you know you only have a couple of breaths left in your life, if this is your last evening, you are not going to beat around the bush with a bunch of random stories, and you're going to go on tangents. You are going to get to what's truly important and what's bearing upon your heart. And that's what Jesus does here. And you're going to see as we read through it, there's a bit of tension in the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Why? Because you can imagine by this time, it's been three years that Jesus has walked with and journeyed with these young disciples. And they've lived together. They've journeyed together. They've adventured together. He's taught them. He has discipled them. And so now he gets to this moment where he says to them in John 13, verse 33, before we get to your passage, he says, children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, now I tell you where I am going, you cannot come. So what is he saying? He says, for this moment in the great journey of life, you know, transformation and God renewing all things, I am going back to the Father, and you're not going to come with me in this moment. And it's hilarious. Immediately, there's a whole bunch of reactions. Peter, ever the foot in the mouth guy, immediately jumps up and he says, no, Jesus, we will follow you wherever you go, even if it costs me my life. What bad self-awareness. He is about in a couple of hours to actually abandon Jesus. Um, Philip gets up, and he's, or, or Thomas, and he's confused. He says, Jesus, wait, where are you going? How, how can we go with you? And so Jesus says, he says this in 14.2, he says, I am going to my father's house. And Philip, immediately confused, he says, wait, how, you know, how does that work? Show us the father, Jesus. Now, if you have been reading the gospel accounts up to this point, it's like a face palm moment for Jesus. After three 
years of teaching and discipling and telling them, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. This is the bigger picture. I will give my life. I will bring the kingdom. I will renew all things. They ask things like, how can we go with you? Show us this father that you speak of. And so Jesus, frustrated, no doubt, he says in chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Have I been among you all this time, and yet you do not know me? You have been here, but you don't know me. I think for most of my life, that was my engagement with the Christian faith or religion of all kinds. Maybe that is where you are this morning. See, this is dire for Jesus because these are his apostles, the one who are going to, you know, the ones who are going to take this, this kingdom message forward. They are going to establish the church. The next couple of thousand, you know, of years of human existence and reality, it hangs in the balance and these guys are clueless. On the evening of his death, he's like, oh my word, father, why have you given me these men and women? They are nowhere. But... Jesus says in this moment, we're going to read this morning, he says, I have hope yet. I have a great hope, in fact, for you. And maybe this morning, that's where you are. You have done many Christian things in your life. You've attended many services. You've you've done many religious practices. You've tried out faiths, but you've never actually encountered Jesus for yourself. That's what happened with these disciples. They had not yet deeply and truly encountered Christ. And he says, I have hope for you. Let me tell you about it. So read with me. John 14, verse 16. He says, and I will ask the Father. What is this hope that he speaks of? And he will give you another counselor. Some of your translations will say helper or comforter or advocate to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and I will reveal myself to him. Verse 25, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, again, or the comfort or the helper or the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. And therefore, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give you as the world gives Don't let your hearts, therefore, be troubled or fearful. So this is really an incredible passage. And Jesus comes and he says, the hope that I have for these clueless disciples of mine is what? It's a person. The Holy Spirit. And these early Jewish followers, these disciples, they would have seen in the Old Testament, because that was their reference, they would have thought of the the Holy Spirit as some kind of force that just goes out from the Father to accomplish the work of God. But Jesus speaks very personally, 
This is category-breaking stuff that he says here about the Holy Spirit. And I want us to discover three things that are so crucial for you this morning, whether you are a Christian or not yet. I want you to see this. And the first thing is, number one, in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you've given your hope and your life and your everything to him, if you are in Christ, you are not alone, Jesus says. Why? Because the advocate has been called. You are not alone because the advocate has been called. You see, Jesus says a couple of things about the Holy Spirit that is, it's a bit, it's a bit much for the, for the disciples to even get at this point. It's groundbreaking stuff. Number one, he says, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a Star Wars-like thing that you, that you command to do things. No, he says the Holy Spirit is what? He's a person. And this person I'm sending to you when I leave. The second thing he says is that on the one hand, when I go, yes, I will be gone. But in another sense, I will actually be closer to you than when I was here. My presence in one sense will be away, but my presence in another sense will be actually closer than it was because it will be mediated by this person. Not near you, not even next to you, but in you, this person. So who is this person that Jesus speaks of. Now, this Greek word in your Bible, it might say comforter or helper or advocate. Uh, it might say counselor. It's this Greek word parakletos. And there is no English word, single English word that can capture the full dimension of this word because it has two very strangely competing things that make it up. The first word, kaleo, that's this um, idea of calling someone, to admonish someone. To, to call them to attention, to direct them. It's a forceful word. But this other word, para, which makes up parakletos, means to come alongside someone, to come alongside them and support them. So even today we use words like paramedic or paralegal, someone who comes alongside you to support you medically or legally. So in this word, we have the strange idea of someone who comes alongside you to support you and direct you and draw your attention. But there is a, there's, a, there's an arm wrestling going on in this word. Because on the one hand, this idea to call, it's a forceful word. It's not a passive word. It's not just that I'm speaking to you. We're conversing and I'm asking you how's it going. No, this word says, listen to me. I want to direct your attention. It's forceful. It's directing you. And then on the other hand, the other sense of this word is this very comforting word. It's this very empathetic word. I'm coming alongside you to support you, to hold you, to strengthen you. So in this one word, Jesus says, you know who is going to come when I leave. It is the union of prophetic challenge and priestly support. There's this prophetic challenge that's going to come alongside you. And there's also this priestly support. And that's why I think the word advocate is actually a great word for this. Jesus says, when I go, I will send you the advocate. Okay, now friends, let's just quickly be honest. I know in church we can pretend sometimes, let's take off all the masks and be deadly honest. There are just two kinds of people in the world. Will you agree with me? There are people who like medical dramas, right? And there are people who like legal dramas for their series, right? So either you're a medical person, you like ER or Scrubs or, you know, the Grey's Anatomy or the Good Doctor. That's like your thing. Some amens. Anyone? I'm not sure. You like, you like seeing the doctors, 
you know, snog each other there in the waiting room or so. So you're either like a, a medical drama person or you're a legal drama person, right? You're like Suits or The Good Wife uh, or maybe, you know, Law and Order or LA Law. One of these shows, that's your bag. And then there's a third category. And this is a very sad reality in our life. You get legal drama people, medical drama people, and then you get people who watch no, 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 it's even worse than that. People who watch reality TV. Have you seen that? They watch things like Keeping Up With The Kardashians. That, I mean, the fact that I even utter that this morning, I will have to go and wash out my mouth. So can I, can I just say, if that's you this morning, if you are like a reality, when we pray at the end and everyone's eyes are closed, just quickly get up out of your seat, run out of the church and never come back, if that's all right. So I know we're a church for all the people in the city, except for the people who watch Keeping up with the Kardashians. No, I'm just kidding. I love, I think we all, we all get lost, like in some reality show over the holidays. That's true. You have to see what happens at the end of Cake Boss. Um, but let's say for now, I am a legal drama person. I love to see these, these guys going at it in the courtroom, defending and shouting and being all charismatic. That is the picture that Jesus says we should have of the Holy Spirit. He is the advocate who has been sent for us and to us. And the reason for it is, number one, you have to understand that an advocate will at times support you emotionally. If you are in a legal bind, if you're fighting for your life in the court, your, your legal counsel, your lawyer, your defense lawyer will at times emotionally support you and say, come on, you hold on, we've got a good case but guess what? At other times, your lawyer is going to take you to task. He's going to say, you need to understand this and this and this. You cannot just think and live the way you want. This is crucial for you to get. And more importantly, what's beautiful, your defense lawyer also speaks to the powers at be on your behalf. He stands in front of you. And Jesus says, my clueless disciples, I'm about to die. And after three years, you still don't get it, but it's okay. If you have not encountered Christ yet, if you have not encountered him in a long time afresh, he says, it's all right, there's hope. Because the advocate has come. The advocate is near. You are not alone because Jesus has sent the advocate. But the second thing I want you to see this morning is not just that you do not have to think or believe that you are alone. You are never alone if you're in Christ. Secondly, if you are in Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because another advocate stands in your place. Another advocate stands in your place. I'm sure you noticed as we read through that passage, you can maybe underline that or highlight that in your Bible, that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is not just an advocate, he's another advocate. You catch that? So what is he saying? He's saying, in other words, there is a second advocate in the Holy Spirit. But then the question naturally is, who then is the first advocate? If, if the Holy Spirit's the second one, who is the first? Now, there's only one other place in the whole of the New Testament that this word parakletos is used, this advocate word. And it's in 1 John 2 verse 1. And it says this, My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also those of the whole world. 
Jesus says, yes, the Holy Spirit, the second advocate is coming. But we need to understand that there is a first advocate, and it is Jesus himself. And the answer to the confusion and just the lax attitude of the disciples is to truly grapple with and come to understand the work of these two advocates. It's the work of our first advocate on the cross and the work of our second advocate in our hearts. That is what transforms you. That is where we encounter Christ. That is where I constantly grow in truth and in faith and in boldness in Christ. In fact, I would say if you don't understand the work of the first advocate, Jesus, you will not truly appreciate the work of the second advocate, the Holy Spirit. So can we dig into that just for a second? With our neighbor church going for it in worship, I love the fact that we are many, many churches in the city together. So just focus on my voice. Just focus on my voice. The first advocate. Quick question for you. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Now, many of us are going to say something like, he, to, to save our souls. He spilled his blood to set us free, to to make sure that we can be forgiven and reconciled with God. And that is absolutely 100% true. But I want us to dig in a bit deeper today. Because if Jesus says that he is the advocate, there are implications for us in the work that he has done. And it's going to so bless you where you are today. So the first thing, the first implication is if Jesus is the advocate, if he is the legal counsel in our place, it means that in a sense, there is a bar of justice that all of us form part of. There is some kind of universal spiritual courtroom that we all see our lives playing out in. Friend, can I tell you, I don't know about you, but for me, the most blood-curdling, stomach-turning moment in my life is when I am caught red-handed doing something that I know I shouldn't do. Ever felt that? Knowing that this is not good, why are you doing this? And I thought I could get away, and then you caught, and suddenly your blood, it's almost like it turns into this ice-cold liquid. I know why. Can I tell you a very stupid, benign example from our own life and then a very serious one? Let's start with the light stuff. I remember when I was in primary school, I once found pliers in the house. And so I decided I'm going to, one by one, dismantle all of the toys in my room. And when I say dismantle, I mean break irreparably. That's what I'm going to do. So I sit there and I'm nervous because I know I shouldn't be doing this. My parents have bought me all these toys. It's so awesome. But I'm sitting there. Now, why do I do that? Why do young boys do anything that they do? I have no idea, but I really enjoyed it because it's fun. So I'm literally breaking my toys one by one with this, you know, this set of pliers. And my younger sister, younger one of the two, she walks into the room. And I flip around and our eyes meet because she knows and I know and I know that she knows and she knows that I know that I am now in massive trouble. So I run after her because I don't want it to get to my parents. And there's a whole other story of what happens there. But in that moment, man, my heart nearly skipped seven beats because I was caught in the act and it was horrible. Let me tell you a serious example. I've often shared from the pulpit about the journey that I walked as a younger man with the evil, toxic thing called pornography. It was something that nearly, I think, ruined my life for Many, many, many years of my life, I was absolutely struck under and addicted to pornography. And one of the lies that I believed 
And if you're in that place this morning as a guy or a girl, let me tell you, it's not the truth. That if you think getting married will solve that issue, it won't. So I got married in my early 20s. And a couple of months into our marriage, this one evening, we're sitting on the couch together. And Shay is doing some budget stuff on my laptop. And she discovers some stuff that I did not want my wife to see. Now, I don't know about you, but that was one of the most difficult and heart-wrenching and yet life-giving conversations that I've ever had to work through. That was the start of a very difficult and yet transformative journey for me. But that moment, man, being caught in the act, sitting there thinking, why, why do you do this? Look at the hurt that you are causing. I know that I'm in the wrong. You know, in Romans 2, Paul says exactly that. He says whether you are spiritual or religious, whether you are secular, whether you're humanist, doesn't matter. We all have this deep-seated knowledge in our heart from day one that speaks of justice and injustice, right and wrong, and you in your own conscience know when you are in the wrong. He says this in Verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Why? Because their consciences confirm this. I know that's what happens. And you don't have to be a Christian or even particularly spiritual to agree that you know when you are found out in the court of the universe, as it were. You know, some people would say, Ach, no, man, that's nonsense, man. There's no such thing as genuine right or wrong. Morality is something we make up for ourselves. Every, every people group, every civilization, every person, it's all relative. We decide collectively what's good or bad. Or even people, your right and my wrong, it's all a matter of perspective. I think C.S. Lewis, please go and read Near Christianity because he absolutely dismantles this idea in the opening chapter. And he says, guess what? If you meet someone who says there is no true thing like right and wrong, it's all relative. It's all relative truth. He says the moment that you wrong that person, stamp on their foot, steal something from them, lie to their face. You know what they're going to say? The first thing they're going to say, that's wrong. Why? Because the moment it's wrong toward you, then we all agree that there is genuinely something like right and wrong. And so he ends this chapter by saying this. Having gone through this whole idea of the natural law, we all feel the natural law in our hearts. He says, these then are the two points that I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And they can't really get rid of that. But secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature and yet they break it. Is that describing your life? (laughs) I know what is right, and yet I don't do that. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. When I am honest with myself, I know that when I am found in the divine court of justice, I am in big trouble. And then when I hear, I have an advocate who comes to stand before me. My heart rejoices. When I have an advocate who comes not just to prep me up a bit, but to say, I will stand in your place. Because guess what, friends? Jesus is not primarily a good moral example, though he is. And he's not primarily someone who's going to emotionally just come and you know, pick you up a bit and support you, although he does that. You know what he primarily does for us? He is our advocate in our place. 
That's what he does. We need representation. And the reason for it is you can imagine that if you, again, if you're fighting for your life in court, you know what happens? Your defense lawyer, in a sense, takes your place. It's like you sink away and your defense team stands in front of you. Now, I think of some celebrity trials that I've observed. I think of the legal team in those trials. I think of the O.J. Simpson trial in America, where it says that he had literally assembled, if you've watched the documentaries or the series, which is really good, if you've seen that he assembled what they called the dream team, and he had all the best legal counsel in this one team, and this team was led up. They were headed up by this guy called Johnny Cochran. He was this very charismatic, you know, well-spoken, well-arguing man. And so he had this famous moment in closing arguments where, speaking of OJ, kind of comically trying to not get this glove onto his hand, he famously said, if it does not fit, you must acquit. Isn't that beautiful? People forgot about OJ because Johnny Cochran was taking the center stage. I think of Oscar Pistorius. Every single day in the papers, you would hear about not one man called Oscar Pistorius, about another man called Barry Roo, right? And he had this classic line, I put it to you, right? All the time, I was captivated by this man because in a sense, they just melted away as the accused and their legal counsel took center stage. That's what happens. If you are not well-spoken, if you fumble over your words, but your lawyer is well-spoken and eloquent, what do you look like in court? You are well-spoken and eloquent. If you are not you know, all together up there and you don't have all the ideas, but your legal counsel is smart and he's knowledgeable, what do you look like in court? You are smart and knowledgeable. If your lawyer wins, you win. I love what Charles Hodge says. He's a theologian. He says about Jesus being our advocate, he says this, in court, you disappear into your advocate. Isn't that beautiful? In court, we disappear into our advocate. And Jesus says, I am your advocate. That's why 1 John 2, we just read, If you are guilty, if you have sinned, if you have wronged, if you know by your own conscience or by the law that you are in trouble, you have wronged, you are not whole, you are broken. If you come to that realization, do you know what you need? You don't primarily need someone who's going to come alongside you and say, oh, it's all right. No, man, just try a bit harder. It's not that bad. Life's not that bad. Come on, you can do it. No, you need someone who can come and fight your case. That's what you need. You need representation who can come and substitute in your place. And you don't need a lawyer who's simply going to try and tug the emotional strings of the court. Ah, oh, friends, you know, my, my, my representative here, he's not a bad guy. Let's all agree he's a good guy. That's not what you want. You want someone who comes with an airtight legal case saying this and this and this. These are the reasons why my, my representation, why they are absolutely scot-free and they should be set you know, free in front of the, the law and the courts. That's what you want. And so what does Jesus come and do? Does he pull heartstrings? No, this is what First John 2 says. When I'm found guilty, verse 2 says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We have an advocate who does not just pull emotional strings, but he comes to make a case before God. And that's why it says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why can God be just 
even to forgive us. Because Jesus, as our advocate, comes to stand before this almost universal court and says, Yes, my people have wronged, my people have sinned, my people are broken and lost, but I have done what they cannot do. Here is my life, here is my death, here is my resurrection. I will stand in their place. Now, I always used to thought this, this picture of Jesus as our advocate before the Father. It's almost them like begging before the Father. Like, oh, Father, you know, I know, you know, Lachai. Lachai didn't have a good week. I know. And, you know, he was struggling a bit. And, he, you know, he swore too much. And he didn't read his Bible enough. And, but now he's at church again. So come on, just, you know, give him a, just show him a bit of mercy. Father, please one for me. Just for me. I'm Jesus. You know, we tight. Just one for me. Is that the picture you have of this? We have an advocate before the Father. He's begging for mercy. No. Jesus stands with absolute confidence and says, my life for theirs. It is finished, he said on the cross. He said, I don't come to continue this work because the work has been done. And on the grounds of that work, I know, God, that you are just to forgive them, to cleanse them of unrighteousness. And that's why it says of Jesus, this advocate that we have, 1 John 2 verse 1 says, Jesus Christ The righteous one. Righteous means to have right standing before God. And it says our advocate is the righteous one. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 makes this beautiful observation. He says, he made the one Jesus who did not know sin and brokenness and death and helplessness to be sin for us. To become my failing, to become my brokenness, to become my sin, to become my pornography, to become my selfishness, to become my hate, to become my envy, so that in Him, I, you, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, our advocate, says it is finished. And the courts of heaven joyously agree when I am in Christ. I do not have to fear, because another advocate, the advocate, is working my case. And finally this morning, I want you to understand for you, please take this in your heart this morning, take it home, take it into your work, take it into your marriage. Not only are you not alone if you're in Christ, not only do you not have to fear if you're in Christ, but number three, I want you to see that in Christ, if you are in Jesus, you can constantly grow. You can constantly mature. You can constantly be sanctified. You can constantly move forward in God. Why? Because the two advocates are powerfully at work. You have the dream team in your corner. Not because you're special and nice, but because God is gracious and loving. You don't have to stagnate. You can grow. Friends, I think it's so encouraging that the apostles, the disciples, those who actually walked with Jesus for three years on this earth... They were clueless the evening before he was about to be murdered on the cross. You know what that tells me? It tells me, Joe, there is still hope for you. It says, Malcolm, there is hope for you. Max, there is hope for you. Heinrich, there is hope for you and me. Nicholas, there is hope for you. Why? Because Jesus says, you clueless bunch of, you know, screwballs. I am very frustrated right now. But luckily I know. That when the advocate comes, you are going to be saturated in. You are going to be convinced of. You are going to be massaged in with the truth of God. That is 
how we grow. That is when Paul says, I'm compelled by the love of Christ. When do I grow? It's when I'm more convinced of the work of these two advocates, the work of my advocate on the cross and the work of the advocate in my heart. When I understand that and grow in that, I grow. I mature. I let go of the shackles. God peels my white knuckle fingers around my guards, my guards of success and money and esteem and friends and and career and all these things that I hold on to. He says, let the advocate help you to serve the living God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's what it looks like to know what he has done. This is what Brian Chappelle says in his book, Holiness by Grace. He says, when we understand that our works in themselves earn us no merit with God, then the only reason to do those works is love for him. It's love. So we learn to serve God, not for personal gain, but for his glory. It's not love of self, but love of the Savior. See, because that's what the two advocates come and do. My first advocate, Christ, the righteous one, stands before the throne, stands before the eternal courts of heaven and says, their sin for my righteousness, their brokenness for my perfection, their failings for my perfect life, death, and resurrection. And the courts say, yes, amen. And so, in a sense, my first advocate speaks to God for me. But the second advocate comes and says, now I will speak to you for you. Because yes, that's the truth. The truth is that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. It's done. Go and read Romans 8. But is that my lived experience every day? No. I don't know about you, but for me, it's not at all the reality often. Often I know this to be true, but I feel a million miles away from it. Often I know that I'm a victor in Christ, but I live like this abandoned son out in the street somewhere. Often I know that God has called me to great things for Him, for His glory, for His fame, but I walk this path of crookedness and failure. You know what I need? I need the work of the second advocate to say, let me remind you of what Christ has done. That's why Jesus says, read that with me. Circle that in your Bible, verse 26. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, the advocate, He will teach you all things. And remind you of everything I've told you. You think maybe today like they thought. No, Jesus, you have to be here. You think maybe today, if I could just live in the time that Jesus actually lived, if I could hear him and see him and sit literally at his feet, I would do so much better in this thing called faith. Jesus says, no, it's not right. Not even my disciples. Not even for them that was true. He says, no, what you need is the advocate, the Holy Spirit, not to come and be next to you, not close to you, but in you, to come and massage into your heart, into your soul, into your marriage, into your character, into your business, into your finances, into your sexuality, that Jesus is your advocate. John Apak has this beautiful picture. He says, if you walk at night and you see this big building and it's lit up by all these, you know, these spotlights, And you see it, you don't turn around and look at all the lights and you're like, where are those lights? I just want to see these lights that are lighting up this building. No, you don't do that. What do we do? We just take in the building. Wow. I just just drink in the beauty of this building. He says, that is what my spirit is going to do. 
It's going to light up the work of the first advocates. And every single time that you stumble, every single time that you sin, that you sickle, that you feel that I'm not making it, that you think I'm not good enough, that you think God is disappointed, that you think that you are far away, the Holy Spirit will come and he will open up the floodlights of the finished work of Christ and you will hear in your heart through the Bible, through the worship, through the church, through the people of God, through nature, through the witness of the Spirit, you will hear it is finished. Your advocate has spoken. Now get up, follow me, and serve with love. Serve in a response, not of of hard obedience, but of thankful grace. Every single time. So can we finish off this morning? Maybe the worship team can join me. We're just going to take a moment just to let that sink in. We're just going to sing that song that speaks of that I am who God says I am. Advocate, Holy Spirit, this morning, might you come and massage into our hearts. So think about this as we close. In Malcolm Gladwell's classic book, Outliers, he has the story of these two pilots and this terrible crash that happens. 73 people lose their lives. And it's this flight that was going from Columbia to New York And all these people lose their lives. But the sad thing is when they recover this black box and they listen to the conversation between the co-pilot and the pilot to figure out what went wrong. Because you see, there was a whole bunch of confusion on ground level. And so they had to encircle in a wide radius just the airport all the time to wait. And so the pilot becomes more frustrated and tired and burned out. He doesn't know what's going on. So eventually he starts making really stupid mistakes and he's falling over what he's supposed to do. And they were hoping to find this, this very you know, difficult conversation between the co-pilot and the pilot. You know what they found? absolute silence. Save for a small little word here and there, the co-pilot did not say a word until the moment of his death and the pilot's death and 71 other people's death. And Jesus comes and he says, you know what? In your most dire moment, when you feel I have now encircled this issue, this struggle, this pain, this sin, this marriage thing, this, God, I have, I'm tired and I'm broken. I feel deceived. I feel far away. He says, your co-pilot, the advocate, he will not be silent because he will call you once again to the most true thing about you if you're in Christ. And that is who he is. You are. You will become more but that's who you are. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, I want to say to you, the Holy Spirit, the co-pilot will continue saying to you, without Christ, you are lost. You are lost in your sin and brokenness. You are lost in your small gods of, of sex and money and success. But if you're a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit will continually call you to say, when you struggle, you are not alone. You do not have to be afraid. And you don't have to worry about microwave faith. Friends, there is no such thing as Uber Eats for faith. God, I want to be strong and bold and courageous by tomorrow. No, the Holy Spirit says, come, my son, come, my daughter. You can grow. The advocate has come. Let's stand together. Jesus, I just pray this morning, may your spirit And the work that you have done as our advocate and the work that the Spirit continues to do as our second advocate, may it flood our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.